Lord. Can we just pray before we turn to God's word together? Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to rejoice in adding to the fellowship through the birth of Liam. Thank you for the opportunity to rejoice in what's happening in the fellowship, that Alive isn't preparation to be the church someday, but Alive is the church already. Thank you for celebrating te- uh, uh, preteens going out with uh, fourth through sixth graders. Thank you for what's happening in TruthQuest. And thank you for what's happening right here in this room in the hearts of your people as we look to your word this morning. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to see, you would open our ears to hear, and more than that, you would instruct us how it is that we can live for your glory. We recognize in the midst of all of these moments and milestones of life how much we need you. All of these things are very exciting. Oh, and our hearts leap and they rejoice at hearing what it is that's happening in your church but we recognize our own efforts will fall short. We can't sustain this on our own. So Holy Spirit, sustain your people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now last week as we came to the close of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 31, Paul says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And what, he's ta- what he was talking about was the body of Christ. And he was bringing some instruction, some correction for the church, where some were saying they undervalued their gifts. In other words, they looked at their gifts and they just said, well, I'm not like so-and-so, and so I'm not necessary in the church. And he was bringing correction to that, and he was saying everybody is necessary. Every gift that is given is necessary in the church for the building up of the church, for the unity of the church, for equipping the church, for training in righteousness. He's also bringing correction and instruction to those that just say, like, I wish everybody had the gifts that I did. I wish everybody was just like me. And he's saying, no, that's not what it looks like to be a part of the church. And in the midst of that, in this wonderful revelation of how all of the gifts before the cross of Christ and before the throne of grace, how all of the gifts are equal, he says, and still I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And I think about in Scripture when we have these moments where, where the world is interacting with those that have gifts and they're seeing something in the community of the church and they're seeing something that they say, I want that. What, what can I pay to have that kind of power? I don't think what they're talking about is words of knowledge or healing or, or some kind of trick or anything like that. I think that what they're talking about is this excellent way that Paul instructs us on at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's important for us to realize that there is no magic or mystical power involved in spiritual gifts. But there is absolutely the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. There is the divine power of God involved in the spiritual gifts. And the world may look at that and say, how do we replicate that? And yet it's something that God gives exclusively to his church. See, there, there, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is, is struggling with division and confusion. And we find ourselves as a church living in a world that has the same aim and the same results all around us. Perhaps you're even walking through things with those even in the church where there may be a lack of love and a self-centeredness that is involved. And today, Paul is going to instruct us as a church 
Now, I think it's right to acknowledge at the outset that this is a very common passage to hear in wedding ceremonies. I do believe that it's, it's appropriate to speak of divine love in wedding ceremonies. I don't think it's the main point of this passage, though. But I don't think that it's one that we can't say these same, these same principles apply to marriage and to marital relationships. And so this morning, as we're going through what may be a very familiar passage, can I just issue a word of caution? Don't check out on me. Like if you're sitting there and you're like, finally we've gotten to 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 1 through 3, I really know that my neighbor needs to hear that. Actually, the Spirit might be saying, you're the one that needs to hear that this morning. If that's your thought. Or if the thought is, 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, I, I could probably preach this passage for Chris. I, I don't think that that's what the Spirit wants to do in us today. See, the, the familiarity of the Word of God is a wonderful thing, but not so that we check out from its principles. We should be familiar with the Word of God. We, we should be diving into the Word of God to where we understand it, and we've heard it so often. But not in a way that says, so now I am, now I don't have to listen to that, or now I understand these things, or now I have all of this together, and not realizing that God may have something fresh that he wants to do in us today. So as we look to his word today, can we just listen with ears opened anew and see with eyes afresh? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Lord, help us in the application of your word to our lives today. You know, love today is a very slippery word. It's kind of mushy, isn't it? And I don't mean mushy like emotion and, and kissy face and all this kind of weird stuff. I, I mean mushy like it's somewhat undefined. It can't stand up really to almost anything. So I, I, I was out in the yard last night, kind of late into, into the evening, and I kept hearing the thunderstorm coming, but I, I couldn't see it, you know, where I was positioned in the house. I couldn't see the clouds just beyond the house, and then all of a sudden, I was in the rain. And I had to make that decision, am I going to stop the work that I'm doing? We, I mean, we all know this decision, right? Like, this will be over in five minutes. Am I going to stop the work that I'm doing? And so I just decided to keep going. I hadn't heard the sirens go off at the ball fields around the way from our house, and so I thought, okay, I'm fine. I'll just be soaked, no big deal. But the box that I was, that had some of the tools and some of the parts of what I was working on in it, the box was made out of cardboard, and it, and it looked as if it was fine sitting there until I went to clean up. When I went to clean up, all of a sudden I realized, like, it's just mush in my hands. And it just falls apart, and I, I was shocked because it stood there, and it looked like a regular box. It looked like it was containing something, and yet in, in the moment that some kind of outside pressure came to it, it just instantly fell apart. And I think that that might be a, an illustration of what the word love looks like in our culture today. It looks like it's doing something. It might even feel like it's doing something, but the moment anything come to it, that, that it can't stand the pressure. 
And so what, what are we to do when we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 love as this principle that we are called to live out? Actually, love is central to the gospel. See, it's not something that is this crush. It's not based on this transactional type of lifestyle. It's not based on our self-esteem or how it is that we feel in the moment because those feelings can be very fleeting. When Paul is talking about love here, he is talking about divine love. He's not talking about erotic love. He's not talking about fellowship or brotherhood or friendship type of love. He is talking about a divine love. And in in divine love, it's important for us to understand that affections are necessary and actions are necessary as well. In divine love, both affections and actions are necessary. Now, now here's where there's a word of caution for us, and I think that we're going to see this as we go throughout our passage today. I think Paul's word of caution is in the same way that he was speaking of spiritual gifts to not undervalue or to overvalue your gifts, Paul is instructing the church in these first three verses not to underemphasize emotion or affection and overemphasize action, nor to overemphasize emotion and affection and to underemphasize action. He's calling us to live a life that fully understands divine love. So how is it that we might do that? Divine love is also known as agape love. You'll hear that phrase at different times. And agape love is very simply defined as this. It is unconditional, sacrificial love that biblically refers to a love, and there's three things that it refers to, that, that God is, that God shows, and that God enables in His children. So God is this divine love god shows his divine love and god enables his divine love in his children we'll see this in just a moment in these three sections from first corinthians 13 this morning and we also know this from the fruit of the spirit and we'll see that in just a moment as well but it's important for us to understand that love is more than feelings but it's not less than feelings affections and actions are both necessary And in each of our verses today, Paul addresses an an action without affection. And we begin to understand what it is that Paul is after in the Corinthians church. And we begin to understand what it is that Paul wants to stir up in us as a church today. See, the Corinthian church had lost track of love. That was a fundamental problem for them. In the midst of unity and purity being two of the the fruit of the problem, love was at the center. See, they were very good at lusting. They were very good at envying. They were very good at competing. They were very good at disdaining, but they were not good at loving people in the church in Corinth. And consider in verse 1, in the the beginning of verse 2, where Paul begins with tongues, and, and he's addressing a misuse of this gift but he's addressing it in a way that lacks love. And and here's where we face kind of our first challenge of our passage today. See, as believers, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us from darkness into light. We saw that last week in 1 Peter. We are called to proclaim. I mean, Timothy is standing up here this morning. He is proclaiming, he is declaring his faith in Jesus Christ. It's true that our faith is one that is to be declared, and it is one that is to be shown to others through our affection and our action. If we consider verses like 
1 Corinthians 14, it says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. What is prophesy? It's a declaration of something. So speech is a part of our faith. We should be speaking about our faith on the regular. It's something we should be declaring. 1 Corinthians 14, 39 says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So it's not just speaking the things that are clear. It's those prayer languages. It's those ways that we declare the glories of God through tongues and interpretation. And we're going to see those passages in just a few weeks. What about Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, where it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? So speech... And actions are a part of our faith. They're called to be a part of our faith. Acts 2.18 says this, Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So what do we do when we think about love? I think Paul's point here is that without love, our speech will not be heard. And at the end of verse 1, he compares it to a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. People are going to close their ears to that. They're going to turn away. They're going to put their hands up over their ears. And and can I just address something that I believe might be happening today? Let me take it from example of two extremes. I think that there, there are those in the church that may say, I'm going to love you by saying the hard things to you. I'm going to proclaim the hard truths in a hard way because that's loving you. Noisy gong. It's almost like saying, brace yourself for this love. There's something about that that doesn't fit right, isn't there? But I think that there's an opposite problem as well. I love them, so I'm not going to say anything that's true. And I think it's the same problem with a much more sinister effect in our culture. See, we go throughout life and we love people and we love people and we love people, but we never speak anything that has to do with truth. We never talk about the things of God. We never actually bring up hard truths that Scripture speaks. And what are we saying? Well, we're almost hiding behind love then. We're using love as an excuse not to love them in the most eternal good. This is not the same as saying brace yourself for love. This is the same as saying, calling you to divine love. And my challenge for us today is, both are wrong. How is it that we're going to be brought back to what God's intention is for love in the church and the declaration of his truth? How is it that we as a church are going to be the ones that that don't tend to swing from one extreme to the other, but we call people to the truth of God's word? And we love them in the process as God is working on the transformation of their heart and mind. And we love them in the midst of their their lives being conformed to the way that God designed it to be. Are we willing to walk through that process? But I I just want to challenge you today. If we think that we have to love by only being the person that says the hard things and never walks through anything with someone, or if we think that we have to love by never saying the hard things, we might be getting love wrong entirely. God's Word calls us to both. 
Unfortunately, situations and the circumstances and the context for all of these things, they add a number of things for us to consider. But the truth stands nonetheless. We are called to proclaim our faith and we are called to love our neighbor. It means that we're cultivating a deep affection for those that we are speaking to. It means that love fills the truth that we speak and it fills the truth that we speak with meaning to the person that is hearing it. But I would contend, I don't believe that we'll be able to do that unless we are continually receiving of this divine love ourselves. I think it's very easy for us to to be that mushy cardboard box. Even in the way that we think about love, we get a little bit of truth and then we start swinging it at our neighbor's. Or we receive a little bit of that divine love and it causes us to go into neutral in our faith. Both are a wrong response. Our love for the individual should fill the truth that we speak with meaning to the hearer. And it should be something that is not like a noisy gong, a clanging symbol that people are going to close their ears to. What's the second thing that he gets to? He speaks of faith. He speaks of a number of things in this second verse. He speaks of prophetic powers, understanding mysteries, knowledge, faith. I think they all kind of roll up into that faith. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We are called to love through the faith that we have. And we're called to have faith. And it's not just a a saving faith. It's a faith that's going to sustain us. It's a faith that is a gift of the Spirit in order to do the miraculous things that God has called us to. We consider passages like Matthew 17, 20, when he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So we are called to have this divine gift of faith. And it is married with this divine gift of love that we are to experience. Mark 11, 20, uh, 23 says this, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Luke seventeen six, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. All of the Gospels attest, That we're not only called to pursue knowledge, but we are called to be wise in our application of that knowledge to a variety of situations. But this is not knowledge, this is not faith, this is not wisdom that puffs us up, as Proverbs warns us. It helps others to grow in their wisdom as well. And 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us that Christ represents not only the power of God, but the wisdom of God as well. And so as we are considering these passages, we realize that encapsulated in all of those things is the divine love of God. Not just our ability to speak to mountains or trees and say, go from hither to yon. It's to be able to say that in the midst of this, there is a divine love that is being shown and portrayed through our actions, through our wisdom, through our faith. See, the Corinthians, they were obsessed with this higher knowledge. They were obsessed with uh, excellence. They, they put this very high premium on intelligence, insight, and even this Gnostic kind of secret knowledge. Their, their, their intrigue was that the idea that there could be like levels of Christianity. I mean, we see this in so many different things today where it's like, I want the premium package of Christianity, so what's that going to cost me? 
And once again, we realize that in the midst of this, we are putting an emphasis on something that is temporary when we are called to the eternal nature of divine love. By saying that it can be something that is leveled or purchased. What's Paul's point in the midst of this? Without love, all the things that we should be filled with by the power of the Holy Spirit, that be words to speak, be knowledge to have, that be faith, that be power. Without love, all of those things equate to zero. He says at the end of verse 2, I am nothing. I am what? Empty. Zero. I am that cardboard box on Chris's driveway in the rain. Starts to sound a little less familiar than the wedding message, doesn't it? Starts to sound a little like we might need to think about this a little bit. Sounds a little bit like we have to consider what impact this is having at our kitchen tables, in our workplaces, on our campuses. Sounds like it's one of those things that it causes us to wonder what implications does this have on our friendships, our relationships, our our community groups. Knowledge devoid of love is nothing. And intelligence minus love equals ignorance in God's kingdom. This is a very serious matter. This isn't just something mushy. This is something that has eternal significance. And lastly, Paul gets to our service of one another in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, this is, again, not an excuse for us not to be of service to one another. This is not an excuse for us not to give to one another. This is not an excuse for us to just kind of close our ear to the need of our community group or to the need of those in our family. Matthew 6, 2 through 4 says this, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is when we're reminded that our actions aren't just to be this display of our own good works. This is when we're reminded that our own sinfulness can actually be something that is shot through, not just to our actions, but our thoughts and our motives as well. And God says, I see through all of those things. And what he's looking for is this motivation of divine love in our hearts. What motivates you in different things that you do? Is that moment of attention? I always wonder about the, this is a random thought. I'm going to go with it, though. You ever watch Masterpiece on PBS? I always wonder, like, what did it take to get your name on that list? I, it's that weird thing, right? So sorry, like for Downton Abbey fans, you might know what I'm talking about. Like there's the little music that comes on, little trumpet fanfare, and all of a sudden this list of donors that have made this program possible for me. Oh, how wonderful. I wonder what it took for them to get on that list. Most likely a trust or a foundation. How many of us are living our lives in a way that we want to be at the beginning of the Masterpiece Theater list? And we're going to want to love our neighbor like Christ calls us to, like Paul is instructing the church in Corinth. All right. 
Scripture affirms that we're called to serve one another, that we are called to, to give ourselves away. Daniel 3.28 says this, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than worship and serve any god except their own. In the midst of this story in Daniel, this account of what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do we see? Three men giving their lives away, generously serving a people. But in their heart of hearts, even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes their motivation is to serve God and not themselves. They trusted in him and they set aside my command giving up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Have we given up our bodies to serve the God of today's culture by not saying the true thing? By not saying the thing that Scripture clearly speaks to, that Scripture clearly affirms? Have we gotten to a place where we don't talk about sin and the punishment that that requires in Jesus Christ and, and, and not realizing the application that that has in our own homes, in our own hearts, in our friendships, in our relationships with other people? Have we given up our bodies to other things rather than serving the one true God? See, we have this example in Jesus Christ. He is the one who perfectly gave himself up. In, in World War II, there was a church in Strasbourg that was destroyed after a bombing. And, and in this particular church, the people gathered together in this community and they began to sort and sift through the rubble to see what is it that even remains. And to their surprise, they came across a statue of Jesus Christ that was like 95% intact. And the, and the 5% that was missing were his two hands. You can actually Google this image and you can see this statue where the hands of Christ were. They were seared off by a beam when it fell in the midst of these bombings. And so the, the leaders there in the church, they got uh, a sculptor together and they said, okay, what would it take to repair this? And so he came back and he said, I would love to repair this for free and this is what it's going to take. And, and as the leaders were talking about it, they, they came to this place where they realized we actually don't want to put the hands back in place. We don't want to put the hands back in place on the statue because we want it to be a reminder that that's who the church is called to be. That's who the church is called to be today. The church is called to be the loving hands of Jesus Christ, the loving nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ to a watching and waiting world around them. Maybe in your own family, maybe in your workplace, maybe on your campus, maybe just the person you're going to interact with as you give your lunch order today, you are called to be the hands of Jesus Christ. And you're called to reach out to them in love and go to them in love because I think that when Paul says, I gain nothing, his point in the midst of that is to say that without love there is no gain in giving ourselves away. What if a person that you knew was in need of tremendous financial assistance and your family had just this unlimited amount of money and you thought, you know, I'll help them out. Sure. Sure. But we want to make sure that he understands something. I don't love you. Oh, I'm going to meet your need, but uh, I don't love you. And I think many of us would sit here as the one who says, oh, I have this great need. Sure. 
Give that to me. Meet that financial need. I think we're lying to ourselves to a degree. I think there's something deep inside of us that wants that love, not as a string that is attached, but as a reality of, I love you enough to help satisfy this need that you have. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ. We come to him with a great need, and it's not financial, it's a debt of sin. We come to him as ones who have this tremendous need, but instead of just saying, listen, I satisfied your need on the cross, but I don't love you. He says, I satisfied every need, and by the way, I put extra in your account. I've deposited my righteousness on your behalf, and I love you. You are my brothers and sisters. You are a child now of God. I have purchased that for you to to welcome you in. And I think there's something about that that seems so much more meaningful to us, doesn't it? Because what we're looking beyond is just the circumstances. We're looking at the very heart of why it is that Jesus came and gave his life for us. See, I think the love-desiring person in all of us would say, you know what, keep it to a Savior that just took care of that. I think we would be tempted to say, if you don't love me, I'd rather be starving. I'd rather be homeless. I'd rather be broke. If you don't love me, this transaction means nothing. Your charity, this noble act, it really doesn't mean anything. And I think that represents the world around us. It wants to reduce love to this simple transaction. A confused and messy word. But Scripture confronts us entirely. Not just to the need that we have. Scripture, it confronts us entirely in our thoughts and our words and our actions. And it calls us to something that is higher than a transactional love. It calls us to an agape or divine love. And it affects the entire way that we view the world around us. Because it affects the entire way that we view ourselves. No longer are we the ones in need. We are loved. Sam Storm says it this way, if love for other Christians doesn't control and shape how you employ your spiritual gift, your gift is worse than worthless. It's dangerous. Love has been compared to a pair of reading glasses. In one lens you have the lens of love, and the other lens you have the gifts that you've been given service, giftedness, obedience. And if we were to pop out the lens of love and we were to put those glasses back on, I think we could kind of make do for a little while, but that's not going to be very sustainable. It's going to be exhausting in a whole new way. It's going to lead us to a place where we are going to be empty. And yet we realize that God's divine love is lavished upon us and it never runs dry. And we think about Galatians 5, knowing that spiritual fruit that we're called to bear starts with love. Paul urges the Galatians to walk by the Spirit in 5.25, that love is supposed to be yoked with everything so that we're not squinting for a time out of, one's, out of one lens, but we're actually seeing perfectly. And we realize that unlike the requirements of the Mosaic Law, the ones that were written in stone for us to see, that God writes the requirements of the covenant of grace on the hearts of his people. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33 affirms this. 
By the way, all these scriptures will be online with my notes in the next couple of days. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And how is it that this covenant is written on the hearts of the people? Well, it's written on the hearts of the people through the activity of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 tells us this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, the work of the Holy Spirit transforms us to live according to God's provisions of loving regard for those around us. But more than anything else, for loving regard of His name and His renown. See, I want us to note carefully that the moral requirements of the law don't vary. They don't change. They're not supplanted in these moments. What is supplanted in that moment, the the greater thing that comes in and replaces is the motivation to obey and the power to obey. Those are entirely different than those that are motivated by the law. Under the new covenant in Christ, we live a life of love guided by the character and care of God as it is reflected in His law. We do that to please the one who rescues us, to please the one who redeems us, rather than to try to set ourselves over and above others around us. Our motivation becomes one that wants to please Him and do so not in our own power, not in one lens versus two, not in an over or an under emphasis on the wrong thing. Our motivation is to please Him in the power of His might rather than the strength of our own resources. Sum it up succinctly, if the Corinthians would simply fill their minds and their hearts with the good news of the gospel, they would understand love perfectly. If they understood love, both its affections and its actions, then they would have in turn loved one another well. If there would have been something in their heart that wasn't mushy and would fall apart when any stress came against it or any, anything came against it, but it was able to actually hold the, the divine love of God, it would be what spills out into others. And Christ is our example to look to, both in our affections and in our actions. You know, as I've been preparing, I've been thinking about how Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane perfectly captures loves divine emotions and its action. This may seem like a strange place to turn, but, but consider Matthew 26, 38 through 39 with me this morning. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Perhaps our call for each one of us today is to look to the tender affections of Jesus Christ, where his actions toward those he walked with started throughout the Gospels. It wasn't pity, it was compassion toward his own creation. And then his actions culminate in his gruesome death on our behalf. 
His love on full display for all to see and a call for all of us to respond to today. So how will you respond today to his divine love? Will you turn away? Or will it be the source of your life and the center of your actions? Look to the divine one as your example and source of divine love and let it empower you today to live for his glory. Would you stand with me, please?